Hello, and welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. We're brought to you today by Tough Love Screenwriting, a brass knuckles, boots on the ground guide to building a paid professional screenwriting career, written by veteran working screenwriter John Gerald. Available now on Amazon.com, and there's a link on our site for your convenience. And for more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com. But first, we have on the show the story editor at William Morris Endeavor, who earned his MFA in screenwriting from NYU and spent over a decade at ICM and the William Morris Agency prior to his current position. He's also taught screenwriting at UCLA, has produced three features to date, and is the host of his own podcast, which is terrific, by the way, The Inside Pitch. Uh, He's also a member of the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, the Writers Guild, and the Producers Guild. I'm very pleased to have on the show today uh, Mr. Chris Lockhart. Thanks for coming on the show, Chris. How are you today? I wish I had your speaking voice. You have a nice speaking voice. (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. First off, we like to get to know you a little. I know you don't like to talk about yourself a lot, but we just like to get to know you a little bit before we get into sort of the nitty-gritty to see where you're coming from. Um, You're from Staten Island, but you came out to L.A. after grad school to work in the industry. What spurred on that decision, and what came next? I had a friend that I was in graduate school with who said, you know, if you want to be in in the movie business, you need to be out in L.A. And I was like, really? And he was like, yeah. And I'd never even thought about going to L.A. And when you live on Staten Island, you you die on Staten Island. And uh, I, I pretty much thought that that's what I was going to do. My original plan was to be a New York City school teacher. I actually was. When I was in graduate school, I was a full-time teacher as well. And uh, that's where I was heading. And then just that go west young man uh, philosophy sort of set in. I graduated from NYU, I think it was June 2nd and June 28th. I moved out here. I'd never been to Los Angeles. Wow. Uh, I didn't have a job. I didn't have a place to live. I didn't know Santa Monica from Santa Clarita. <laughs> Uh, I knew nothing about L.A. I, 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 today, I would never do something like that. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> and when I arrived, I actually cried. I, I probably cried for like seven long years because I missed, I missed my family. I missed, mm-hmm. missed pizza. Yeah, I missed a lot of stuff. But uh, somebody told me this was where I needed to be. And so that was, that was actually why I came out. And I came out to write. Mm-hmm. And I had a writing partner. And we wrote together for probably almost a decade. And uh, eventually, he he needed to leave town with his wife. Uh, it's not as ominous as it sounds. She got this this like fascinating sort of position at the University of Baltimore, and and he needed to go. And this was just a little bit before the internet, and 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 you know, so now I was sort of stuck out here on my own, uh, having to write on my own, having to take meetings on my own, and my life just sort of went in weird places. Personally, family stuff got weird, and I don't know. It was just after a decade of being out here, I had this kind of crazy crash, and I really didn't know what I was doing anymore. Uh, I was writing for a producer on the Sony lot. What was his name? Moshe Demon. Hmm. And it was a miserable experience. Nobody there knew their ass from their elbow. And, uh, and, and without a writing partner, I had nobody to commiserate with. It was, it was really terrible. And I was like, gee, this isn't, this isn't what I thought it would be. And, you know, after some other things happened, uh, some connections were made serendipitously, and I get a call from ICM, the office of Ed Lamato. So friend of a friend had mentioned my name to him because of some other work that I had done, and Ed was looking for somebody to 
to sort of be his librarian, somebody who could go through piles and piles of scripts and consult with him. He used to call me his, his other pair of eyes. And that was what he was looking for. He was looking for another pair of eyes. Ed Lamato at the time was, was one of the, the world's biggest talent agencies. Sure. He was responsible for discovering Mel Gibson, Richard Gere, Michelle Pfeiffer, Edward Norton, and go on and on and on. And uh, he's, he's represented everybody over the years from Ava Gardner to Marlon Brando to Meryl Streep to Robert Downey and Liam Neeson and the other actors I've previously named. He was also the co-president and vice chairman of ICM and it wasn't really a position that I wanted to take, but long story short, too late, I ended up taking the job, calling my agent at Ur Schechter and saying, I'm done. <laughs> uh, I don't want to write anymore. Uh -huh. And, um, Figuring I would take a break for a year or so and then, you know, leave ICM because I had no intention of ever spending too much time in some kind of corporate environment. But that wasn't the way it ended up panning out. Ed Lamada was terrific with me and he really allowed me to sort of be creative. Um, so I, I didn't have to take on a business sort of enterprise there. It was very creative oriented and, and, uh, and, and it was great. And I got to meet these amazing people and work alongside great people at ICM. And, you know, a lot of those people have fanned out into the industry now. So I know people everywhere. And, and then Ed left ICM. We went to William Morris, uh, and then William Morris merged with Endeavor. Lamato passed away in 2010. I was bequeathed to Patrick Weitzel, who's the co, uh, CEO, along with Ari Emanuel here at WME. And, uh, and so that's it. You know, so now I sort of kind of like forage through scripts and pitches and magazines and old movies and TV shows and anything anywhere where a potential film project could be found. And so, you know, it's like if Denzel Washington is, is doing a movie, that script came through me and then you know, Denzel sort of gets my consultation on, on, you know, how I feel it sort of fits into his filmography and if this is something interesting or not. Eventually, of course, the client always makes the decision. Mm -hmm. I'm merely there to, to sort of provide information. So I'm really a source of information for the clients. Right. Because they can't read everything. They can't, you know, they, you know they're off making movies. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's sort of how it's evolved over the years, and and uh, and it's a it's a it's a great great gig. I, it's it's great. I love it. Right. And you actually answered my next question. Can you explain what the story editor at WME does? And so you explain that. Um, so my next question then is, what's the greatest challenge? That what is most difficult finding great material for A-listers? Well, that's that's it. It's finding great material. <laughs> That's what's difficult, especially to, you know, I always like to use somebody like Denzel as an example because he's really right now, God bless him, at the top of his career, and, and he really is an amazing talent. And so, you know, any script that I read, look, you could give me the phone book and Denzel could make the A's sound like Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I always know that he's going to class up a project. But it's, but it's about trying to find material that, that's off his beaten track that he hasn't necessarily done in the past, but something that isn't too off the beaten track. And, 
so it's it's actually tough. You know, it's, it can be tough to try to find that that right piece of material for the right client. Right. And so that's probably the biggest challenge of the job. Okay. Now, as story editor at WME, the world's biggest talent agency, um, yes. and, but also being a producer, how does the approach change just in terms of, of the job itself, looking for material for talent as opposed to looking for material as a producer? How does the, your approach change? Well, the approach changes in the sense that when I'm looking at a script for talent, I, I really am honing into to the role first and foremost. That's what's really most important. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm like, okay, is this... Because look, if Denzel is going to uh, consent to do this screenplay, then it's a movie. Because, you know, the big question all the time is, is this a movie? Is this, is this script a movie? Because the thing that I always bitch and moan about is that people write scripts, but they're not writing movies. And this is why they're not selling their scripts, because they're not movies. And most of them are hardly scripts. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, <laughs> They're not movies. Nobody wants to produce this. And the thing is, is that if Denzel wants to do it, everybody's going to want to produce it. Right. So, that's, so that's not the issue so much. It's, it's is, this, is this a good role for him? Is this something that's going to advance him, both you know, spiritually, psychologically, creatively, financially? Uh, but as a producer, you're looking at something, first and foremost, overall, is this a movie? Is this something that I can, for example, send to an actor like Denzel, who would then want to do it? But I think as a producer, it's always about, is this a movie? Is this something that I can sell? Is this something that can be sold to an audience? So the questions are bigger for me as a producer. As a story editor, the questions are smaller because I'm only concerned with whether or not this project is right for a particular client. That's all that I'm ultimately concerned with. And, and, and those other things that I look at as, as a producer certainly come into play, but the priorities are different. And I should make it perfectly clear that, that I'm an independent producer, and, and that, is, that has nothing to do with what I do here at the agency. They're two completely different jobs. It's as if I were working at the agency during the day and McDonald's at night. They're two completely separate entities, and I keep them very, very separate. Mm -hmm. Now, you're a producer um, on the side, credited on the horror cult classics, The Collector and The Collection, and actually both... Yeah, um, I wouldn't call... Oh, wait, 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 wait. Now, I wouldn't call them c classics. You might want to call them cult. Okay. Maybe the first one has a cult following. To call it classic, you've blown a lot of heaven up my ass. Uh, I was there. I saw those movies. Uh, I had a great time doing them. Uh, I love them. I would not take it back for the world. Um... But, you know, they're, they are what they are. No, I love them. But how did you get involved? Because we've had both Patrick and Marcus on the show. Uh, how right. did you get involved with those guys in the Collector Series? And, and what was your role in that? Well, yeah. it, um, it sort of came about accidentally. Uh, I was just, it was sort of altruism, to be honest with you. Uh, Patrick Melton, the uh, half of Marcus and Patrick, right. they've written all the Saw movies, for example. Right. Patrick was my intern oh, wow. at ICM. And uh, I actually spoke at his uh, class. He was an MFA student at Loyola Marymount, and I spoke there. And the next day, out of the blue, he calls me and he says, hey, I was in that class last night, and I was wondering if you need an intern. And I was like, hell yeah. You know, he's like, well, you know, I want to make sure that I'm right for it. I'm like, listen, you know, if you can read and you can write a little bit, fine, come on in. I got a lot of scripts to read. And so he came in. He was great, smart, funny. We got along, loved him. 
uh, I eventually hired him, and he worked at the story department at ICM for a while, and then he won Project Greenlight, mm -hmm. and off they went. And um, they made that movie Feast. Mm -hmm. I got them signed at ICM, and it wasn't easy, by the way, and sadly. And before Feast came out, they couldn't get any work. And so one day, Patrick's in my office. We're just hanging out. And he says to me, you know, I, I, I need a job. And I was like, well, what? You want me to... Uh, you know, hire you again to read scripts? He's like, no, no, I need a writing job. And I was like, well, you know, I mean, like, you know, how can I help you? And he's like, well, do you know anybody? I was like, well, what do you got? And so he pitches me this concept for the collector, which is this idea of a thief who breaks into a house to steal a safe, and unbeknownst to him, the family, which he believes is away, mm -hmm. is actually being held you know, under siege by this masked lunatic who has rigged the house with traps. And this burglar is now sort of caught inside this house, and he has this moral dilemma as to whether he should get the fuck out of there or he should save the people. And uh, so he decides to save the people, which he does uh, very unsuccessfully, and then you sort of find him trying to break out of the house that he just broke into. And so I sort of loved the irony. I loved the moral dilemma. I was like, wow, that's really awesome. So I know these guys... Um, at Fortress Films, I've worked on some stuff with them, and they have development money. Not a lot, but they might be able to pay you if they like the idea. And so I eventually, it took me about nine months to get them all together. I actually was teaching a class at LA Valley College, and for the last class, I had a panel. And so my strategy was, I was going to invite them all to speak on the panel since I couldn't get them together any other way. <laughs> And then after class, I would force them together. And that was exactly what happened. And eventually, the Fortress people decided to hire them to develop the script. And then, since they hadn't produced very much, the Fortress people, maybe nothing, or maybe one thing, I'm not sure. Um, I said, you know, my very good friend, Julie Richardson, who produced Collateral, uh, she might be good to have on board for this. And um, I eventually got Julie to meet Patrick and Marcus and blah, 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 blah. And so anyway, everybody was together. Patrick and Marcus said, you know something? We want Chris to help us develop the script. We were all on a conference call. And just at that moment, I said, you know something, guys? I'm a producer on this project too, okay? And they're like, okay. <laughs> and that was it. So, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't, it, it wasn't something that I had set out to do. I, mm -hmm. just, I just sort of brought everybody together. And that's what a producer does. And oh, then absolutely. I helped along with the others to develop the script and, you know, fight with everybody about what I thought worked and didn't work. And, uh, you know, so it was a, it was a fun and a fascinating process because actually we, we sold that script to the Weinsteins. So the movie was originally, it was, it was produced, it was made under the auspices of the Dimension Arm although it wasn't released by them. Eventually, the movie sold to Mickey Lydell, and then he released it. Uh, so the Weinstein's names were, were expunged from the film, and Mickey Lydell became the executive producer. So, but it was really interesting, and, you know, long, long time. Probably took, I don't know, we, re we released that in 2009, went into like maybe 1,300 theaters. Uh, but 2009, I think we started to develop it in 2004. So it took five years Wow. To actually get that movie made from, you know, the very beginning to when it was released. Wow. Yeah, you got to have a lot of patience in this business. Right, right.
That's persistence sometimes. So that's how that worked. Great. Let's switch gears real quickly and let's talk about your podcast a little bit because you actually came to my into my radar because one of a mutual listener, this person who listens to both of our podcasts, thought you'd be a great guest because you critique pitches, log lines, and stuff like that, and you're a master at it. And so I listened to your podcast and I thought, yeah, this guy is really, really smart. And so for writers who haven't listened to your podcast, it's the inside pitch. Which, on, which, on, which, yes. which, by the way, is every single writer. It's only this guy. I don't know who this guy is, <laughs> but he's the only person who listens to my podcast. Literally. What is his name? You. Let's give him a shout out. What is his name? I, 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 I honestly don't know who he is because <laughs> I don't really give a shit about anybody who listens to my podcast. Gotcha. Actually. And that's, and that's the problem. That's why nobody knows about it. Because I don't care if people listen. I just do it for myself. Well, I care about our listeners, and I want to tell our listeners they should check out the inside pitch. How often do you get to pitch your logline and ideas to a working professional at the biggest agency in the world and get honest expert feedback? I mean, it's a great resource, so you can, they can That's call That's what in. I tell my listeners, you know? Yeah. That's what I tell any, anybody who listens. I'm like, listen, you know something? Nobody on the planet gives a shit about your script. Right. And, and typically, the you know, 23 hours a day, I don't care about your script either. But while I'm doing this podcast... I'm all yours. I'm your story slave. I am, I am, I'm, I'm here for you. So call me. I will talk to you. And uh, I will give you lots and lots of free advice. Uh, you know, I'm like the, uh, I'm like the uh, Dr. Ruth Westheimer of, of, of scripts. <laughs> am I dating myself with that reference? You know, I don't know anything about talk radio, so I really couldn't think of anybody, anybody else. Dr. Laura, is she even still on the air? I have no idea. Dr. Phil, he doesn't, he doesn't do radio. So anyway, um, so the podcast came about uh, off of my Inside Pitch Facebook page where people were like, you know something, you should do a podcast where people call in and pitch. So like everybody, you know, everybody's like, oh, what a great idea. And then when I do the podcast, nobody wants to call in to pitch. You know how that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the producer, Kevin Hill, has done a pretty good job sort of reaching out and finding, you know, unsuspecting people to call. It can, because it can be tough. Um, this, this sort of sprung from something that I had done a decade ago where I had started this free workshop in the Beverly Hills library where we would all read a script in advance that was online at twoadverbs.com. And then people would come along with the writer, we'd put them up on stage and I would facilitate basically a workshop where people would critique the writer's script. And the last 15 minutes, I would open the floor up to general questions. And it was always, here's my log line. What do you think? So that sort of became my shtick. And then eventually I would travel around town. I'd meet with writers groups. There was this great bookstore on the West side. I think it was called the Take One Bookstore on Westwood Boulevard, and I'd go in the back room, and they'd stuff like 100 people in there when there was probably only, you know, like maximum capacity, 25, and people would pitch. And eventually, through, you know, crazy kind of happenstance, uh, they shot it for local TV out here. I get an Emmy nomination for it. I'm probably the only screenwriting teacher who's ever gotten an Emmy nomination for teaching screenwriting. And, um, and so, so it really sort of became my shtick. And so over the years, when I meet with writers, it's typically what I do. I, I really don't do Q&As. I'm more interested because I think that the writers find it more interesting rather than hearing me go on and on like I'm doing now to instead 
be interactive and be able to sort of say, here's my idea. What do you think works? What do you think doesn't work? Mm-hmm. And so that's what the inside pitch is basically. People sort of pitching a log line. Maybe they've already written a script. Hopefully they haven't because the truth is that the best time to get this kind of advice is before you go into the script. Right. And the thing is that I've read well over 40,000 scripts. I've probably read in the last 25 years probably over 50,000 scripts now, I think. And I've read so many scripts. There's nothing that you're going to be able to pitch me that I haven't read at least some facsimile of. Mm-hmm. And p- probably your pitch is a story that I've read a facsimile of probably 80 times. So I know where those 80 other versions went, where they worked, where they didn't work, why. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of helps me when then I'm hearing a pitch because I don't actually need to even read a script. I can hear a pitch and know exactly what's not working in your screenplay. And and I know this because empirically I've done it many times where I've heard a pitch and I've said, this is what I think doesn't work. And then I read the script and I'm always right. right. In fact, I've never been wrong ever once. And you're talking about thousands and thousands of times. I'm basically the Edgar Casey. You know, I can like look at a screenplay without even reading it and diagnose it. So that's sort of what I do on, on this show. And it's really, you know, it's, it's sort of infotainment, right. you know, cause it's really about having fun and, not taking it all that seriously. But yet, obviously, I take what I do for a living very seriously. Sure. And it, it sometimes goes off the rails because yeah, some people and their ideas are definitely have a lot to be desired. And you, they don't, suck. And, and, you yeah. let, and you let them know that. You know, the thing is this, too, is that I'm much better in person with people because the thing is, is that people can see in person because, you know, I know how to use my body. I know how to use my face to let people know that I'm giving them advice that's tearing their heart out, but I'm doing it with love Mm -hmm. because there really is, it's, it's, it's tough love like your sponsor. And, and, and it's, it's tough love because, because I love what I do. I really, how can you not? I mean, all I ever do is read scripts and watch movies. That's all, that's all that I do. You know, it's like when on the rare occasion that I, that I get to work out of the office, then I'm going to a screening room and consulting with the producers on a client's film to figure out ways to cut it so it will be more successful. I mean, I'm literally, my mind is always involved in story one way or another. So I love it. And so when you're getting that, that perhaps um, that brusque nature, it, it's, it's, it's love and it's passion. But when I'm on the phone, it's difficult sometimes to be able to communicate that to people right. because, you know, I, because they, they can't see my body language. They, they can't see my face. And you get people calling and, and they're nervous and they've never pitched before. This is their first script. And, uh, and then I sort of get that vibe where, I, you know, I, I don't want to be like that total steamroller. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my nickname at work, uh, is the hammer. It was, it was given to me by Liam Neeson because, you know, he said that that's the, that, you know, whenever we spoke about scripts, that was the way I sort of tackled them. Like, you know, I was just beating the shit out of them with a hammer. And so that's, you know, that's become my professional nickname. And, um, but when people are not in the, the business and, you know, it's that sweet old lady, it's some like sweet old lady from the, from like the South, from like Arkansas or something, you know, she was like, like living out in the woods and she had this sort of idea that was uh, a really sort of 
a metaphor about the protection of the Second Amendment. And, you know, there were some interesting things in there and some things that didn't work. And maybe if it had been another caller, I would have been like, dude, this is terrible. <laughs> but because it's her. So when you kind of listen to the show and sometimes I'll get some feedback where people like, gee, you know, you sort of sort of stepped back on that pitch a little bit. It's because I feel like maybe that person's not going to be able to, to take it. Right. So, you know, I tried, try to modulate a little bit and then maybe yell at that person uh, at a time when it doesn't feel like I'm yelling at her. Right. Maybe I'm just outraged about something in general but involves her pitch. Right. So, um, but I think it's fun, and I get a lot of no, I get a lot of nice notes from from people that say, "Hey, you know, that really helped me." And the truth is, and again, I say this all the time, which is why I'm saying it here. You know, I'm not a consultant. Uh, you know, I don't have to sort of offer bullshit to keep customers. I don't give a right. fuck about any of that stuff. So the thing is, is that. Most of these people have these ideas, and, and even if it's a great idea, they're never going to be able, never going to be able to write it, because writing a screenplay is really, 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 really hard. It's really, really hard, because if it were easy, everybody would be, would be doing it, everybody would be making money, and I've read enough to know it is not, and I've written enough to know it is not easy, and I think it's almost offensive when people think it's easy. It's hard. It's very, very difficult. And there is an innate talent. There is, I believe, a God-given talent for the truly, and I don't really believe in God, but, you know, it's an expression, that, um, that the truly great dramatists were born. It's in their DNA. And then there's, that, there's like mediocre writers that I think sort of, you know, pick stuff up. Right. And can write stuff that's commercial and with the help of development people and friends, you know, they can end up writing a good script, you know, a solid script. But there's just a handful of people like Scott Frank or, you know, Steve Zalian or, mm -hmm. um, um, oh my God, there's a client too. Uh, Darabont, God bless him. Yeah. And, and um, God, uh, 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 social network guy. What the hell is his name? He's oh, a client. He's like the greatest writer on the planet. Aaron, Aaron Sorkin. Aaron Sorkin. Yeah. And um, I'm just old, by the way. You know, my mind gets a little, there's a lot of cobwebs in there. But, uh, you know, I mean, these guys are brilliant. They're just yeah. brilliant. Like every time I open up a script from them, I know that, and you know, I don't love everything that they write. Sometimes I'm like, ah, you know, this isn't quite as strong as something else that they've written. But you know you're in the amazingly capable hands. Right. You know, and I've read a lot of scripts by, I don't know, let's say like Steve's Alien, like uh, um, uh, Endurance or uh, The Duke of Deception. You know, these are two scripts offhand that I can think of that are unproduced by him that I love. They're great scripts. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, like, like he gets it. He's just, like, he, knows, he knows how to write because, because it's a, it's a, it's, it was born. It's in his DNA. Right. And that's not the case with most writers. Some writers are able to pick it up and then others are never able, the majority are never able to pick it up. Right. So it really is. It really is. It's like being a singer, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's like being Pavarotti or Whitney Houston. It's really, you know, those are gifts. Those are gifts. So screenwriting is really hard. And, and um, I don't like to sort of lead people on to think, yes, you too can write a script. Right. Because you, pro you probably can't. Right. I think a big part of the difference between those that, 
you know, obviously the, you know, the Zalians and the Sorkins and the Darabons of the world are that elite class. But those you said that can write a good, competent script, um, it may not, they may not achieve brilliance but they can write a good, competent script. I think the difference between those people and those that never do, a lot of it has to do with being able to accept change and feedback and being able to grow as a writer. Because, again, people who call your show and get offended by what you say, they're more, they're, they're, I think they're calling because they want approval. They want you to tell them how great their idea is. They want Absolutely. It, not because, okay, what? how can I make this better? You know, I, I think... Uh... I always talk about the writer's click, mm-hmm. which is that when, as a writer or, or as a filmmaker, when I get a note, nobody is ever telling me anything that I don't know already. Mm-hmm. They're often telling me things that I have sort of hoped that nobody would notice, <laughs> right. or they are telling me things that I have sort of suppressed, oppressed, and repressed. Uh, and so what happens is, is that when I hear a note that I know is a good note, a click goes off in my head, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's that's telling me that yeah I already knew this, and often you have to grapple with that. You know, as a filmmaker, I have to deal with this stuff too. You know, go ahead and read the reviews for the collector, folks. You know, it's got like a thirty-six on Rotten Tomatoes. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I got to deal with that stuff too. Uh, I wrote and produced a documentary that um, I couldn't get anybody at the agency to look at. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. Entered into film festivals. I was getting feedback uh, saying, you know, it's, 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 it's too white. We, you know, we wish that it had more color in it, meaning that, you know, there wasn't enough people of color in it. It was very white. And so, you know, we don't want to program it here in this urban film festival. And so this was the sort of stuff that I was hearing, and it was so disheartening. And guess what? In the end, Oprah Winfrey acquired the fucking film. <laughs> okay? So, you know, this is why you've got to stick things out. You have to be able to take the criticism. That's part of the business. We literally thought about going back and recutting to try to find people of color that we shot to put them in the documentary. And finally I said, you know something that, that is a note for me. That's not clicking. Right. I just, I don't want to do that because that's not our film. It's, it's, it's too disingenuous. And so how ironic in the end that the most famous person of color on the planet, maybe other than Obama and certainly more well loved than Obama, um, <laughs> And I'm, by the way, I voted for him. I'm not that. No, no, no. Yeah, I get it. So, um, you know, just just being honest that, you know, in the end that she's the one that, you know, champions our film. Right. And so it's, 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 it's a crazy, crazy, crazy business. And you, you just, you, you have, you have to take the blows. That's what it's about. This business is collaborative. This is not about you sitting on an island. You know, it's, you have to, you have to be able to work with people. You have to be open to ideas. You just have to be, right. but you also have to know when to hold your ground as well. Mm-hmm. No, you know, absolutely. so it's it's both. It's both. Right. Well, because everybody's critique is not necessarily accurate. Um, their absolutely. notes is they don't solve your problems necessarily. But I think people who automatically get defensive when anyone mentions problems, have suggestions, have you know, notes, whatever, they automatically get defensive. Those are the ones that I think have you know, are going to have a harder time making it. Or right. they're gonna, it's going to be possible because 
you know, you're not going to improve. You're not going to get better. And you're not going to, you're going to be miserable because everyone's going to be giving you notes all the time. And you have to accept that. You know, I, I think people tend to have a propensity just in general to always feel like they have to say something. Mm-hmm. You know, something either negative or something constructive. That's true. It's like, it seems like sometimes people just can't say I enjoyed it. I never, ever will offer up feedback unless it is solicited from me. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's, wow, I really enjoyed it. I'll lie. And listen, you know, if, if, if I'm not getting paid to do my job, I don't, I don't have to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. And, and that may not be what you need at, at the moment. I mean, how annoying, like after you've screened something and somebody comes up to you and instead of saying, hey, man, congratulations, they're like, wow, you know, I would have done things differently. I'm like, get the fuck out of my face. It's like this, like <laughs> this isn't, this isn't the time for that. You know, so it's like as a filmmaker, I understand that. And so I tend to, I tend to, I think, understand uh, how to work with creative people. And so I think that when I give notes, I give notes at the right time. Sure. And, and I also think in a way that's designed to help the writer or the filmmaker uh, reach his vision. It's not about me projecting my vision onto his project, which is what most people right. want to do. Most people aren't interested in what you're doing in your script. They want to show you how smart they are with their own ideas. You know, listen, I think that your Western should really take place in space. Right. Uh, you know, that's what people want to do. And that's obviously the wrong approach. It's really about looking at what the person was trying to accomplish, talking to the person. What is it that you want to do here? What are you trying to accomplish? And then helping that writer, trying to facilitate those clicks in his own head to be able to do that rewrite. Because in the end, that's, you know, the writer often has to do that on his own. The mm-hmm. studios are coming to the writer to solve their problems, right. not, the other, not the other way around. So it's really about training writers to be able to do that, to be able to look at their own work and be able to figure it out for themselves. Right. Absolutely. So I think that's often what I try to do. I, it's really about trying to facilitate a learning process, you know, some some kind of dramaturgical uh, psychology, in a sense, you know, to try to get people to to think about their writing in a dramatic sense and in a cinematic sense. Uh, that's always what I'm doing. I think that's what a lot of my questions are about and trying to get people to think that way. Right. I'm, I'm really not trying to solve people's scripts uh, I'm, or, you know, help people crack their scripts. Although I've certainly done that. But it's, it, but it's really about, cause, you know, something I'm like, dude, you're the one who's getting paid. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, you do the work, right? You know, why should I do the work? Right. That's why you were hired. So, <laughs> but there is a lot of bad criticism. And I think there's a lot of people out there. I mean, just the, the internet is filled with it now. You know, if people they don't know what the fuck they're talking about doing, writing movie reviews. And there are a lot of people uh, opening up, you know, screenplay consultation businesses that should not be doing it. Right. And now I'm not saying that's tough love. Of course, your sponsor, but uh, just, but just, you know, there's a lot. Writers need to do their research. If they feel the need to hire a script consultant, if that's right. their need for whatever reason, they better do their research. Sure, absolutely. Uh, you know, so because otherwise, you get people who are doing it for the wrong reason. I think, and that right. can really screw up a writer's head and his work. No, absolutely, you're 100 percent correct. 
you know, we could talk on for two more hours, but I know you've got to. Let's do it. Let's do it. No, because you know why? Otherwise, I have to start packing. This is. I don't want to pack. <laughs> this is so much I'm more fun than my office. Right. Maybe we should tell your listeners that I'm packing up my office because they are moving us to the building behind. I'll now be on Rodeo Drive. I'll now have a much, a much classier. You know, I'm being booted. Uh, you know, out of like uh, WME proper, and I'm going to uh, the annex, which is because uh, you know we're getting bigger and bigger. We've just merged with IMG, and they're yeah. trying to figure out where they're going to put all these employees, so they're moving everybody around. And so we have to pack up, and I'm going to be in a new office on Tuesday when we when when we come back. So um, yes, and I don't want to pack. <laughs> so I'll, I'll talk for hours. Let's keep going. <laughs> What kind of advice do you have for, you know, again, working at WME, what kind of advice do you have for aspiring screenwriters trying to land their first agent or manager? I think people that are looking for representation need, unfortunately, to do a lot more work today than they, than they had to do 15 years ago. It seems like 15 years ago, all you needed was that, was that script, mm-hmm. you know, that one script that sort of uh, excited everybody. Uh, and that can still be enough, but it almost seems like now you need more than that. Like you need validation. Like you need to come in to an agency and say, look, I have a script that everybody likes and I can prove it because it won the nickel fellowship. Right. Uh, you know, or it's a, you know, I, I don't really understand that whole blacklist thing, but you know, it's, it's, it's rated very high in the blacklist this month. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, something more than just that script. Uh, you almost need to to sort of set yourself on fire uh, because there's just so much stuff out there. The thing about, of course, agencies too is that uh, there's it's harder to make money now. Just just in general, as everybody knows, work isn't as plentiful as it used to be, and so you know there's there's a trickle down, which means that if writers aren't making the same amount of money, let's say that actors who used to get paid $20 million a movie now are only getting paid $10 million a movie. Mm-hmm. Now I know you're going, Oh, poor them, but that, but that trickles down then, you know, right. an agent who was getting 10% of 20 million is now only getting 10% of 10 million. I know you're saying, Oh, poor you, but, but still, you know, don't, don't gloat over the fact that, you know, anybody's, losing money because, you know, 10, listen, that's, if your lifestyle is, you know, at $20 million uh, a movie, you're only making 10 million a movie. That's no different than the guy who's making $15 an hour, who's now is only making seven fifty an hour. Okay. Maybe it's not exactly like that, but you know what I mean? So, um, I, you know, so it's, it's all relative, right? And, and so it's getting tougher and tougher and tougher. And so a lot of the agents aren't interested in just bringing on new writers right? because they have to do all this work to try to get the town interested in the writer, which they don't want to do. They would rather have the writer come to them with interest already intact. So often when mm-hmm. people say to me, you know, when, when will I know it's time for me to get an agent. And my kind of glib answer is, you'll know it's time to get an agent when they're knocking on your door. Right, when they're calling you. Right, that's, that's how you know it's the right time. Yeah, it's no secret, I'm sure, that uh, all new writers should really be trying to get managers first right. and foremost rather than agents. And because managers are much more open to newer writers, they'll develop work. Mm-hmm. Uh, not all agents are. And I'm speaking generally, of course, because I don't know every single agent sure, sure, in sure. the world. But I'm speaking generally. A- agents now are much more about 
they're about the sale. They, they don't necessarily want to develop projects. They want managers to develop projects. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then when they're ready, then they come to the agent, and then the agent gets everything ready to, to sell the script. And uh, so they really should be going toward managers because they are more open to new writers who don't necessarily have heat. Right. All you've got to have is a good script or what appears to, to be potential, uh, you know, some great ideas, things that they can turn into projects to sell. So you really should probably put the majority of your effort into managers. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't look for agents as well. You should try everything. But if you're going to get signed, you're probably going to get signed by a manager, unless you've won the nickel or there's, you know, some sort of uh, extraordinary element to your story. Right. you're probably it's it's going to be much harder to get an agent, especially at the bigger agencies. And the truth is, is that the smaller agents at the small agencies, they're probably not going to do all that much for you. Right. They're probably not going to sell a script. You know, you look at like the Scoggins report. I think that's what it's called. And mm-hmm. you know, they list sort of scripts that sell. And and you know, you look and you you can see the agencies that are selling scripts. You know, you don't see the ABC agency selling scripts. Right. So. Um, but again, that doesn't mean that that the ABC agency isn't getting the writer work, but he's probably getting the writer work at some grade B producer, probably getting paid crap money. But hey, man, it could be a start. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, you need to sort of be aware of sort of where you are in the hierarchy of the entertainment industry. And, you know, gee, should I be sending my script to Ari Emanuel? <laughs> You know, maybe not, maybe right. not yet. Look, maybe so. You know, there's always that one brazen guy. There's always that story that we read in The Hollywood Reporter about right. the guy that bumped into Ari Emanuel and pitched the script, and now he is the showrunner of, you know, uh, some HBO hour long. You know, we read that stuff, and, and of course that feeds into our fantasies. Right. But that's no different than reading about the guy that won the Powerball. Sure. Because it's very, very much the same thing. So much, much more realistic is to write a script that's a movie that people are going to want to make and then market it to managers. And then hopefully you can strike up a relationship there and then build a career. That would be my advice. I mean, it's pretty, it's, it, there's no like secrets. I wish there were, but there's not. There's no shortcuts. Yeah. There really are no secrets. No, absolutely. And I actually spoke to a manager who had said that he had a client for, I want to say, three and a half or four years and until they actually had made any money for him that, you know, they sold a script. Three and a half to four years before they made a dime for him. Well, um, I or, know managers who who have had clients for more than a decade who haven't made or have made very, very little money, like like, you know, in the hundreds of dollars. Right. And do you know any but do you know any agents? Who've done that? No, yeah. I don't. And uh, and, that's and you know, it's, yeah, and especially of course at the larger agencies because the thing is is that you know agents have to agents have to provide. And I don't know if people really understand this, but the way uh, the bigger agencies work is the commission is collected by the agency. Mm-hmm. So the agent doesn't get the ten percent. Right. The agency gets the 10%. And then based on the amount of commission the agent brings in to the agency, he can then negotiate a salary based on that. Mm-hmm. So, if, so if he's bringing $10 million a year into the agency in commissions, 
how much should he be getting paid? What can he then negotiate? You know, right. maybe then, you know, maybe he's going to make, you know, $2 million a year plus mm-hmm. bonus. That's the way agents get paid. So, you know, if they have, let's say 25 clients and half of them aren't making any money, then they can't negotiate a very good salary. Right. And so eventually they're forced to, 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 to cut people, you know? Right. Um, I remember when William Morris, I guess it was maybe just before the merge, when William, um, no, I don't know if it was the merge. I don't know when it was, but, you know, William Morris started to purge people. Mm-hmm. You know, and you had like, like assistants or interns that, you know, had to make calls to clients to say, you know, I'm sorry, but, you know, we're going to part ways. Now, this, was, this was in the days of the William Morris Agency, which no longer exists. Um, so, you know, but this was done because we got to have people that make money. It's a business. It's no different than anything. You know, if you're not making money, then, you know, we got to part ways. And the bigger the agency, then, you know, sort of the more pressure. And that's why the big agencies tend to work with bigger people. And so you just, you just build, you start at the smaller agency and then you build and you go. And then when you start to get big enough to where your current agency can't really accommodate your growth, then you go to the next sized agency. And when they can't accommodate your growth, then you go to the next sized agency because soon you want to break out. You just don't want to write features. Now you want to be a showrunner on TV. You want to write a novel. You know, you want to um, you want to write a Broadway show and you need to be at a place that can do all those things for you. And that's a place like WME. We can do all those things for you. You know, I mean, this is like right. literally we can we we make dreams happen here. We're able to create opportunities for our clients. That's what a great agency does. And um and so you grow with that. So you might be too small right now, and I don't mean that in an offensive way, but you know, if you're, if you're just starting out, you may not yet have the tentacles to where you need to be at a place that can service you the way we can. Mm-hmm. So it's about growing. Yeah, and I think also the appeal, though, besides obviously you know, the name recognition, you know, the, the packaging that you guys can package that, you know, some small agency can't, they can't, they have to go outside of their agency to get attachments, to get funding. Whereas right. you guys, it's a one-stop shop. That's obviously a huge appeal as well. But And rightfully so. Uh, but, you know, ultimately sort of in the beginning, a writer's going to sell a spec script and, uh, you know, the, the thing, too, is uh, I think that when you package, it's a lot of work to package. So mm-hmm. let's say that I'm an agent and I have to package your script. That's a lot of work. To be perfectly honest, I'd rather just you give me a spec script that I could sell mm-hmm. rather than having to package because, because I can sell it and it's done and we make our money. You get your work. Packaging, it could take a year to put something together. And, uh, and, and so that's almost a... a I don't want to say it's a privilege, but it's a, it's it's a it's just a lot of work, and so that's something that we want to do for people who've really earned that moment in their career to to try to package a project. You know, people who come to the agency and say, you know, hey, I want you guys to package this. These are for the most part people who've you know they've been in the business, they have a name for themselves. You know, they've written great stuff already. 
and and so trying to package their work isn't as much of an uphill climb as it would be perhaps a person that nobody's ever heard of before. I mean, it's 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 very very complicated, obviously. So I think it's better to sort of think small at first. Just you know, write scripts that can sell. Write scripts that people can become passionate for. And that's that's your idea. Just first and foremost, that should really be your goal. You know, like I get people all the time, yeah, I have the script. I guarantee you it's going to be a bigger moneymaker than, than, than <laughs> Avatar. I get that all. I'm not kidding you. I get calls all the time like that oh from people. God. All the time. And like, you know, why don't you just tell me that like you have a script that, you know, could be a, a, a solid film rather than throwing out all this hype at me, which, which, which I know is, isn't true anyway. Right. So yeah, people just need to sort of understand that writing scripts is really, really, really hard. So get that right first. Do that right first before you start thinking about everything else. Because the truth is your script probably sucks. So all this other stuff that you're dreaming about is just is a pipe dream anyway, because your script isn't good enough to even get you far enough to where people are going to reject you. You know, to where you struggle to get your script packaged and you can't, but you're not even going to get that far because your script's not good enough. So it's really about, I'm, I'm just always about, just, just do the work, mm -hmm. you know, figure out, find a great idea that's a movie, write it dramatically, write it cinematically, make it intriguing, make it emotional, move me, make me feel differently at the end of the script than I did at the beginning of the script. Try to do that. Try to do that. If you can do that, if you really, really can do that, really, then all those other things will eventually come your way. But the reason those things aren't coming your way is because you can't do it. Oh, you think you can do it, but you can't. <laughs> right. You, you can't, and you're not doing it. You're not doing it. I cannot tell you the people I've met, I've met thousands, probably tens of thousands. I've spoken all, you know, all around the country. I've spoken to two, three, four hundred writers. Uh, people coming up to me all the time. You know, I feel like the, 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 the industry, it doesn't want me. It's shutting me out. I don't know anybody. I'm like, dude, it's just because your idea sucks. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, just, it's, it's terrible. It's terrible. Nobody wants to make that movie. So when you come around, nobody's interested. And uh, that's like shocking to them. Like, well, you're wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> and I tell people all the time, like, prove me wrong. I would, there's nothing I would love more than for somebody to come back and say, you're an asshole. I just sold my script for $5 million, and I'm now the hottest screenwriter in town. I would love that. I mean that sincerely. I would love for that to happen to somebody. But it never has. Nobody's yet, nobody is yet to prove me wrong. And by the way, that doesn't make me a genius. You, you know, you can be a monkey and know that that idea sucks. You know, that doesn't take any great talent to hear an idea and say, wow, that's pretty bad. Yeah. So, yeah, no real gift there. And I find a lot of them aren't even fully formed ideas. No, you know, sometimes they're just concepts. Yeah. And, 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 well, you know, the one thing that I hear every week, or that's not really, well, actually, anytime I hear a pitch from amateurs, and, and, and any time on the Inside Pitch podcast, it's always the same thing, which is that you sort of have a story with a protagonist that has nothing to do. Right. The protagonist has nothing to do. I'm like, okay, so you have a protagonist and you have this idea, and then what? And because I'm like, the then what is your movie? Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm not hearing. 
And then they'll start to pitch something to me. And I'm like, that's all over the place. I don't even know what you're <laughs> talking about there. Or that sounds like the third act. So where's the second act? Right. Where everything and happens. Where everything happens. And that's the thing is that they have protagonists who don't do anything or what they do isn't appropriate for a film. And I don't mean appropriate as in, uh, I can't even think of the word. Just, you know, I mean like dramatically appropriate. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Right. It's like it, it's not it's not something that is going to uh, propel a film. It's not the kind of thing that's going to create tension. It's not cinematic. It's like, oh well, you know, he's gonna he's 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 gonna um, uh, try to figure out why his girlfriend doesn't love him. Like, oh. Okay, so what does that mean, try to figure it out? Does he go to a psychiatrist? Does he go on a mission to try to uncover uh, where she's been? No, 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 no. I just mean, you know, like, you know, he has to really, like, think about it. I'm like, so we're going to watch a person think <laughs> for 90 minutes? I mean, this, 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 is, this is the kind of stuff that you get. Mm-hmm. You know, and that might be an amazing, could be a brilliant novel. And by the way, maybe it could be a great screenplay. Maybe it could be. You know, let's face it. After all, Hamlet's about, you know, an, in, an indecisive protagonist. But the writer who's pitching me this idea is probably not Shakespeare. Right. So, uh, and I would have, always have to consider that, too. So, yes, that's, that, that's the number one. I mean, that's, that's the biggest flaw that I hear in, in pitches and read in screenplays. Because when the character doesn't have anything to do, then clearly the script meanders, there's no yeah. tension, we're not rooting for the character, and, uh, and that's everything. If you, you will t- in fact, I don't really even need to do any more inside pitch podcasts because it's literally the same diagnosis. You know, it's, it's, it is an epidemic. Mm-hmm. It's an epidemic. It's like, it's, like, it's like Ebola, you know, everybody has it, and when you come to my office, I'm a doctor, uh, I pretty much know what you have. Right. You know, like, you, you dude, you have Ebola. And it's terminal. I, 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 it's terminal. <laughs> and in this case, it, it usually is. And by the way, you know, just because a person has a bad idea for a script or has written a bad script doesn't mean that their next script is going to be bad. No, that's true. Um, absolutely not. And I read scripts by amazing writers, writers that I love, that I always look forward to reading. And I'm like, yeah, this one, he just, you know, this is like a single instead of a home run. Mm-hmm. And, you know, or maybe it's even less than that, you know? So not everybody hits out of the ballpark every single time. That's okay, you know? But it means that maybe the script is not salvageable. Maybe it's not a great idea. Maybe it was a little bit misguided. So maybe you put it aside, you start something else. Right. Every real writer in the world has those scripts that he realizes just never really worked. And that's why he's a real writer. That's why he's getting paid to write. You know, that's why he gets um, his, his pension and his, and his benefits from the WGA because he realized, okay, maybe this isn't working. I'm going to put this aside. I'm going to start something else Right. because that's what writers do. Instead of spending 20 years on some script, I cannot tell you how many times. I've met people 15 years ago at some like pitching event, and they're still pitching the same script today. God is my witness. <laughs> the same script. That sounds very dramatic coming from an atheist. But... It's, 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 but it's true. I'm like, dude, you pitched me that script 15 years ago. Yeah, but it's better now. Like, well, have you written anything else since then? That's but, brutal. You know, and you're not a writer. Then you're not a writer because writers write. You should be writing stuff. 
So you know, this is all the this is all of the stuff that you have to deal with with new writers. <laughs> it's all the stuff you got to deal with. I'm a martyr. Yeah. I'm a martyr. I tell you, <laughs> the stuff the stuff I have to deal with. It's take, like just it's like being burnt at the stake on a daily on a daily basis. Take one for the team. That's what I do. That's yeah. exactly. I'm telling you, man. That's what I do. I I am I am saving Hollywood one pitch at a time. <laughs> I do have to say that. Ninety-nine percent of the writers, professional writers, screenwriters, TV writer, producers that we've had on the podcast, they all have. Like I, I usually ask, you know, what is your first script? Can you and, and where is it now? And almost to the person, they say it's not worth talking about. It's garbage, because usually a first script is going to be bad because you're right. still sort of learning the craft. And the few the the one or two that we've had on that sold their first script for some reason, they were a writer in another format medium prior. Like they were, one was a magazine editor and, and writer. One was a, a, an author. So they, it's not like they weren't professional writers prior. Um, but n almost to the T, almost to the, to the person, they were, their first scripts were garbage, including mine. I mean, most people's. Um, right. It's it's those that realize you know what this one's not good. My next one will be better, and you'll continue continue to write like you said. Writers write, continue to write and get better. But you know it's so much more fun to to sort of dwell on the exceptions. That's <laughs> that's what because no yeah absolutely you, you have to be a dreamer. Yeah. To you really do you really have to be a dreamer in many ways to succeed in this business, um, and sometimes ignorance is bliss. Yeah. Uh, I always say that if I knew what I was going to face trying to sell my documentary, I probably never would have made it. Mm -hmm. And again, as I said earlier, in the end, it worked out very, very well for me. But I, but there was a lot of luck involved in that. So, um, but you know, these are the things that we sort of have to grab onto because to sort of think about the reality sometimes can be crushing. Uh, but I think about one of my very, very first screenwriting students was this young man whose first script, first script he sold while he was in college for one point, I believe $1.75 million. Wow. And then he went on and, and, and he sold a pilot. And then he sold another pilot that was produced but wasn't picked up. And then he uh, sold his first pilot that was picked up, and he became the youngest showrunner in history. His name is Josh Schwartz. Oh, yeah. The show was the... The and the show was the OC. Mm -hmm. and, um, and this was a kid who I knew when I met him. And he was, a, he was a, between his junior and senior year when I first met him, when he was my student, that he, he just sort of, he, he was, he's the guy that had like that, that like, that like cloud with the silver lining, mm -hmm. you know, just sort of like the rainbow was over him. Right. And he was just that guy. I, you could see it in him. You just knew that no matter where he went, angels were going to rain down upon him and, and, and beauty and, and lollipops. And, uh, and that's pretty much what's happened to him. And those are the kinds of stories that, that, that people like to hear. Right. Uh, as, as opposed to the truth, which is, you know something? Your script sucks. You're a terrible writer. And you should just not even think about it. You should, you know, you should be playing golf. <laughs> well, let's cut the crap, though. Really, where do I get in the line to become Josh Schwartz? Because that's really all I really want to know. Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. <laughs> if, if I knew that question... Uh, I'd be standing right. in line with him. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know, but God bless him. Yeah. But you know, the script, the script that he sold was, and the funny thing too was that he was such a talker in this class. He was a talker. Mm-hmm. So he was like, yeah, you know, like I have this great idea and he pitched me this idea and it was very, very um, amusing and, you know, kind of slice of life and, and, you know, he had a very interesting way of looking at the world. And I was like, where are your pages? Where are your pages? Well, I'm thinking about it. And everybody, everybody in the class was writing. He was the only one who wasn't writing in the class. But I always said to him, and I loved him so much because I was like, you know, you're the only student who does no, who writes nothing. And I can tell you of the most potential. <laughs> and sure enough, that's, that's, that's the way it played out. So I don't know, you know, that's the beautiful thing about this business is that, uh, you know, we can go on and on. People can listen to my podcast, listen to your podcast. There's no right way to get into this business. Right. You can, you, you can write your first script and sell it and become a wonderkind. There's no rhyme or reason. There's no up and down. There's no right or wrong. There's no gravity in Hollywood. It's just, it, it, it is impossible to figure out. And that's what's terrific about it. And, um, but if you're going to play the odds, and, and I'm, I tend to play the odds, you know, the odds are that your script sucks and you're never going to make it. <laughs> that's true. So, those are the odds. That's true. But mm-hmm. what I will say is, again, if they're open to not, this is my script, this is my, you know, where do I get in line to sell it? But their goal is to, I want to be a working screenwriter. I'm going to work at it, try to get better. Because, I mean, again, unless you're Zalian and and Sorkin and, you know, these Vince Gilligans of the world, you don't start off being a brilliant. And I don't even know how brilliant they were when they started. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. I don't know. But you don't start off. But they got it. But they got it. But they got it. Right. They got it. But there's a lot of working writers who are not Frank Darabont. Um, yeah, the majority of writers on it. Right. And, and, they, and, and, they, and they still turn out good scripts. Right. And again, I think, but that's because you said they turn out good scripts, plural. And I think it's continuing to write because every script, not every script will be better than the last because you might, like you said, have one that just, it's a foul ball somewhere along the lines. But, but you get better as a writer with every script. You know, if you're growing and learning and, and honestly listening to feed, you don't have to take everyone's suggestions because obviously, like you said, it's not necessarily um, all going to make your script better because oftentimes it comes from different places and they have different agendas and things like that. But you're open to taking people's suggestions, looking at them and, and, and looking at yourself and looking at your script and trying to make it better, not saying this is what it is. You know, where do I go to sell it? Which is what we right. get a lot. Um, but you know, too, it's like, let me just be the Debbie Downer again, which is because, because again, you know, I'm all about doses of reality here. Sure, sure. You know, I get it. It's like, you know, people who have podcasts, they want them to be motivating. But, you know, a lot of writers find that my shtick is just as motivating because I can be so negative and so realistic in my approach that people are motivated to sort of show that that's not the case. But the thing is, is that most, most new writers on a treadmill, they're, they're never going to get any better. Right. They're just, they're that's not. True. They're never going to get any better. Listen, I'm sure that you have been on done deal in the past. Yes, you have, yeah. You've mm-hmm. been on done deal? Yeah, okay. it's a great time. There, there are people in done deal dishing out advice like they are Steve Zalian for the last 18 years, and they've never sold a script. They've never gotten a job. They've never done shit. And their ideas still suck. And, and I'm, <laughs> I'm not being mean. It's, just, it's the reality of it is that most people don't have the talent. They are never able to develop the talent at the very least. And, and it's just not going to happen. You know, you have to love 
writing scripts. You have to love it and you have to do it for yourself. Mm -hmm. You really do. You have to do it for yourself. You have to enjoy the process. It's like you're going out to play golf. It's like you're playing tennis. You know, you're not going out to play tennis with your friends on the weekend expecting to get into Wimbledon. That's <laughs> not why you that's not why you play. Right. And it's the same thing with there's so what is it about screenwriting that people feel like that they just can't write a script to try to write a script. That once they write it that they that they believe they that they can sell it. You know? Is that the way they feel after they play tennis? After they play tennis, they're like, okay, I can go to Wimbledon now. Right. Or, you know, he, no. You know what? So they so they play softball in the senior league on the weekends, and you know, are, are they going to get into the into into the uh, the pros? Come on, you know, it's 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 let's 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 be realistic here, and so that's the thing, and and you have to know. The thing is that you have to know, really know, that you're not that guy. Mm -hmm. So I'm speaking to the one or two people that are listening. Because out of the other thousands, you are that guy. You know, I mean, you know, you're that like other guy. You're the guy that's not going to get into the pros. But there's the one or two, and you have to really believe in yourself. You can't, you can't be delusional. And that's why those guys that write those first scripts and then say, "These, this sucks," mm -hmm. or "This isn't working," or "This idea is not good," those are the guys who are, um, they're like self-actualized. You know, they're not running around with their head up their ass thinking that everything they write is brilliant. Right. And it's again, those guys who just don't get it. And because the reality is, is that you're never going to make a dime in this business. So just enjoy writing scripts and have fun writing them. So when you're an old man on your deathbed and you look over on the shelf and you've got a pile of scripts that you wrote over the years and never sold you can smile and say, I'm glad I did that. That's the reason you should be writing scripts, first and foremost, and for no other reason. And if you can continue with that, if you, then I think those are the people that are writing for, for, the, for the right reason because they can't do anything else. My friend Dan Arkin, who's a TV writer, he writes on that, I don't know, I think it's called Suits. Is that a TV show? Yeah. Suits, I think, it is. I think okay. it's on USA, I think. It is, and he's a staff writer on that show. And, and, and when somebody asked him once, you know, why do you write? And he said, because I can't do anything else. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's the advice that he gives to people. It's like, you write because you literally can't do anything else. Because if you can do anything else, then you should go do that. But you write because you cannot do anything else. You're literally drowning. And, you know, this, this is your only life preserver, right. is writing. And, uh, you know, and, and for Dan, that, that worked. And he struggled for 10 years, mm -hmm. 10 years, without do getting anything. I went to graduate school with him, 10 years. And then out of the blue, literally out of the blue, he gets his first staff job on, on the X-Files. Nice. Just pretty much out of the blue, through like a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend. He goes in to meet with Chris Carter, and um, he doesn't even know he's going in to meet with, with Chris Carter. He thinks that he's going in to meet some flunky who was the friend of the friend of the friend and he goes in and he's in chris carter's office and and they're talking about the weather and you know dan just assumes that it's a friendly kind of meeting it's just you know one of those howdy do kind of things meet and greet and just doing it as a favor for the you know poor old writer and then like at the end of the conversation like hey you know i read your spec for law and order and you know what do we have to do to get you on the show here
<laughs> Literally, you know, this is after 10 years, yeah. 10 years of toil. But, you know, for a guy who always said the only thing I can ever do is write. Right. And, and, and he had a wife who understood it. And, you know, and she, she supported him, which to me was, you know, amazing to have that kind of support. But that's the thing. There really does have to be that kind of passion, mm-hmm. but, yet, but yet realistic passion. Dan was smart. He knew when things didn't work. Um, I mean, you can, you can tell. I can tell when I'm talking to somebody who's a real writer and gets it, as opposed to a dilettante who's merely sort of walking around with his head in the clouds right you can do you can tell the difference yeah and even and and by the way that guy who gets it and he pitches an idea to me i'm like yeah that doesn't work and he's not discouraged he's like trying to figure out how he can make it work or he pitches something else Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. bam 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 you're a survivor yeah no absolutely so and i think that's that's the difference. So on my podcast, yes. I'm not blowing heaven up anybody's ass. <laughs> you know, it's, Which it's, is good. They, well, listen, you know it's something? Good. They get that from everybody else. Sure. They get that from everybody else. So when you want a little bit of a dose of reality, if it's too much, you don't have to listen. That's why I only do it once a month. Gotcha. Um, because nobody wants to hear that crap uh, once a week. And, uh, <laughs> and I don't want to... And I don't want to do it once a week right. either. I have too many other things that I have to do. And, so, and you've got to build up. From getting berated by bad ideas, you have to like recover. For oh my God, are you kidding weeks? me? It's like, yeah. listen, it's like therapy, Thorzine. <laughs> I mean, it's like hookers and, and cocaine. I mean, it's whatever I can possibly do to numb, numb myself from the pain of all the bad ideas <laughs> out there. And... Uh, but, you know, again, it's fun, and hopefully the writers who call in, it's fun for them. It's a learning experience, and, and uh, to get people to think dramatically, get people to think cinematically, mm-hmm. that's, that's always my goal, just, yeah. just to think, just to try to think that way. Think like a dramatist. Yeah. Think like a dramatist. Absolutely. And, most, and that's, that's not the way most writers think. Yeah, because a lot of people, they might be better off writing novels. You know, some might be better off writing poetry or emails, right. um, you know, but not screenplays. You yeah, just, yeah. just, and I always say just because you've written a screenplay doesn't mean you've written a screenplay. Because okay. I read a lot of screenplays that right. aren't screenplays. Right. <laughs> That's so, true. Um, you know, That's true. they're like a lot of things, but they're not screenplays. <laughs> So uh, it's, uh, I think the takeaway from all this is that, again, it's hard work. Yeah. It's hard work. Yeah. No, that's something that you know, we like to mention as well. It is a lot of work. And that's something that I think that you want to be successful in the business. You have to grasp now or, yeah, just get out. If you're not really going to put it And please, work. please get out. <laughs> yeah, or, yeah, just get out. We, I like to ask a question near the end. Reading, watching, playing, and listening. What are you reading, watching, playing, or listening? Right now, what am I reading? Um, well, actually, it's, I just got like a, a book that I have to read for work, um, and it's going to be published in March. But sort of on my own, yeah, I'm, yeah, reading yeah. A book, uh, I'm, I'm reading a book called Tinseltown. Uh, it was published sort of late last year. I'm also um, reading the new Bob Hope oh. biography mm-hmm. that also came out late last year. So I'm reading those. What am I watching? I'm watching Orange is the New Black. Oh, cool. 
I know it's been out for probably two years and uh, I had no interest in ever seeing it. And so I was really bored one night, it was like three o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. I said, all right, let me watch this first episode. And I, I love it. I think it's pretty damn clever. Yeah, it's on my list. Uh, my wife has watched it. I haven't gotten around to it. But yeah, it's the same thing. It's on my list of you know those shows you have to watch. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm surprised that I like it as much as... Uh, as I do, but mm-hmm. it's it's probably one of the best cast shows on TV. Oh. It's it's yeah, it's it's really really well cast. Um, all right, so what was it? Playing listening. And listening. Are you are you playing any games? And are you, what are you listening to? Uh, listening to. I don't really listen to anything, to be honest. Gotcha. Um, you know, yeah. I wish I could say, oh, you know, I've got uh, Taylor Swift's 1989, so I can sound like I'm young, or <laughs> you know. I would end the conversation right there. Well, I, was, I, I actually love. I actually love that. I, I. I mean, no, seriously. I think that was that. That was. A, I don't want to say album because then it really. Uh, it's like a. I think it's a great CD. Believe it or not, you know, I'm never ashamed to tell anybody what I like. You know, even even if it makes me look bad. Um, <laughs> playing. I'm actually playing. Uh, I don't know if this really counts. Uh, a super. Uh, su- I guess it's like superhero Marvel. Lego for the Xbox with my son. Oh, cool. Yeah, we're on, I think, like the sixth level. Okay. So, um, yeah, I, 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 really the majority of my time is reading and watching movies and, mm-hmm. you know, sort of critiquing and, and uh, that's all that I do. I don't like to do anything else. It's terrible. I'm incredibly myopic. But that's, I don't you know, like to do anything else. I think to, to be a success in the business, you know, it, t- it does take a certain amount of that kind of biopic vision. I mean, like you had mentioned your, you know, writer friend. And uh, I remember Nick Santora, who was the showrunner of Scorpion, um, said that he doesn't even take vacations. The last vacation he took was like in 2007. He just goes home and he, he plays with his kids a little bit and then he writes at home. Even when he's not at work, he, you know, obviously he's on a show. and But when he comes home, he's writing, not other things and he's just constantly writing he's like i have no hobbies i don't do anything else i just write so any of my hobbies all revolve around sort of what i do Mm. some people tell me it's not good you know that like i need to do other things to to sort of get a perspective of like the real world and step outside of it but if you know i don't know maybe i'm sort of low spectrum autism or something but if this (laughs) but if this is if this is what i love i mean like reading. I'm, I'm always reading about the industry, right. for example. You know, I'm right. never reading anything unless it's for work. I would never read um, a fiction book right. unless I have to read it for work. That is not anything I would ever even think of doing. 99% of everything that I would, would ever read would be nonfiction Hollywood, you know, nonfiction right. about the business. Or maybe I might read a biography about a writer. You know, like I recently read a biography on Fanny Hurst, uh, who was a novelist who's, uh, but of course, had a great connection to Hollywood because just about every single one of her books was adapted into films. And some of her books were adapted into films quite a few times. I mean, she has this kind of amazing track record pre like 19, probably like 1960 or something. So, you know, it's all this boring shit that nobody ever cares about. Like at a party, Alex is I'm a complete fucking nightmare because I have nothing to talk about. <laughs> I don't watch, I don't watch sports, but ask me who won the fucking Memphis critic circle film award. You know, that, that I can tell you who won so, the Memphis critic circle award. I actually just made that. Up. <laughs> um, 
but but and you know, I had to go and ruin it. Well, you know how it is. Yeah. Um, but you get the point. So yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's a good way to end the show. Follow your fashion and or I'm exhausted, get man. Dude, I'm exhausted. That's good though, right? This, this was a com- long conversation. You need to probably cut this thing down to about 10 minutes, so it'll be interesting. Um, we'll see. That would be my advice to you. We'll see if I take your advice or not. Uh, okay. <laughs> because, by the way, I'm never going to listen to this. I never listen to the inside That's pitch. Fine. I've never. I, I hate the sound of my voice. Well, and so I've never even heard one inside pitch episode. Well, I have. And fortunately for you, this I'm not recording this podcast for you. We're recording it for... Aspiring screenwriters, you know, our listeners. Well, there you go. Like that. So there you go. It's and not, it's not and for that's you. That's why I do Chris. it. Yeah, it's not for you at all. So please do not <laughs> listen to this. <laughs> so fuck me, in other words. <laughs> um, thanks for coming on, Chris. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Now I have to go pack. Ah! And you should follow Chris's podcast, the Inside Pitch via the Facebook fan page. Listen to the podcast on Block Talk Radio. We'll have all the links on our site. So if you okay, cool. Want there, we'd um, love to have you. You could and you and you can call in. It would be great. And he will berate you live, and it'll be perfect. I will, yeah, but with and, love, with love. And your producer Kevin won't forgive us if we don't mention your Tumblr page, InsidePitch.tumblr.com. So there you go. Yeah, that out I don't even understand. I've never even been to the Tumblr page. I know nothing. By the way, I don't do anything. I literally, all I do is I call in to blog, talk radio. That's all I do. Kevin does everything. I don't do anything except call in and talk to people for 30 or 40 minutes. While you're drinking that's, a fifth of whiskey. Hopefully. That's it. Usually A&W root beer, because that's actually what I've been doing now. Oh, okay. Um, but he does everything. So, um, Good you know, job, Kevin. He's a, yeah, he, he does. He, he does a great job. Kevin Hell, my, my inside pitch, blog talk radio podcast producer. There you go. All right, and if you have questions about the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or just send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. There's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. And thank you all for listening. 